Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. You must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Tuesday, December 27th, 2022, the 706th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'm your moderator.substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't, or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast a couple days later for free on a variety of podcast platforms and, of course, Rumble. All I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So I hope you all had a very Merry Christmas. I took a few days off to go visit my family for the holidays and had a wonderful time. But so much has happened in the meantime, and I'm going to try to catch up. It's probably going to take me a couple of days, to be honest. But I want to start mostly where I left off, which is with the Twitter files and all the happenings surrounding those. The day I left before I did, I was thinking about the intellectual dark web, which, as you might know, is a group of podcasters, 
thinkers, intellectuals, pretend neuroscientists like Sam Harris, real comedians like Joe Rogan, and fake comedians like Dave Rubin. And this group of people was thrust upon us, I don't know, four, five, six years ago, maybe. And it seemed like these were the people doing the most significant intellectual work in the cultural conversation, all very popular on Twitter. Their podcasts had wide reaches. They were all guests on one another's shows, and they would consistently talk about some of the no-no cultural issues like race and gender. And they were by and large anti-woke and spoke out against wokeness very regularly on their platforms. Brett Weinstein, of course, was canceled from his university. There was a cancellation attempt on Jordan Peterson in Canada for refusing to use pronouns. And they all seem to be doing relatively important work as a counterweight to the predominant mainstream culture. Hardcore leftists online got very mad at them. They were saying the things that no one was supposed to hear. But the problem is none of them really ever understood what was going on, especially not in relation to Donald Trump. The only one who was even Trump friendly at all was Dave Rubin. And Dave Rubin is like an intellectual chameleon. Whoever is around him, he'll just assume that person's position and then repeat it to everyone else. He doesn't really have ideas of his own. And if you read his books... He's got, I think, two now. You can read even a couple of pages and know that there's nothing really going on there. So it's odd to me that none of them figured out Donald Trump. They don't understand what Trump is or what he represents. And, you know, we have this kind of genre of media where someone from the mainstream intellectual world, you know, the very serious intellectuals, they'll write a think piece about how maybe it's possible that Donald Trump supporters aren't all white supremacists or they aren't all terrorists, or maybe some of them have legitimate grievances about the implementation of the global government we see happening every day. And those articles we're told are very objective. They're very charitable to Trump supporters who everybody actually knows are trying to destroy our democracy. And of course, by and large, they all went along with COVID. The only person who really spoke out against the COVID narrative at any point was Brett Weinstein. And I haven't listened to Brett Weinstein in a while, to be fair. So it's possible that he's made many more significant steps forward. I don't think any of the others have. But what we had was a group of people who were more or less completely attached to the central narrative. And that includes Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan will have some controversial guests on occasionally and present some controversial ideas to the public, but kind of not really, you know, and always kind of way too late. Like, it's not impressive to me, despite how good Peter McCullough and Robert Malone were on Joe Rogan's show about a year ago. It's not impressive to me to have them on a year and a half after a lot of what they were communicating to Joe Rogan had been communicated by them and countless others outside of the mainstream. 
Now, whether Joe Rogan has had an overall positive effect during this period, I guess remains to be seen in some way. I don't see any need to give him too much credit. He hasn't had anyone come on to explain how election fraud is not some strange conspiracy theory. And the overall number of guests who have really pushed the awakening forward is relatively small compared to the number of total guests he's had over these last couple years. But all of them essentially think that Donald Trump is stupid and arrogant and weak and clueless and constantly vulnerable to being taken advantage of. They think he can't control himself at all. They haven't figured any of this stuff out. It's just the same complaints for seven and a half years now about who Donald Trump is and what he represents. And they haven't rethought those initial impressions in seven and a half years, which is shocking. Even the most awake of them, the ones that understand something really is going wrong at this point, still seem unable to place Donald Trump in the context of all that other stuff. So, If all of the most powerful people and institutions in the world are using the social media apparatus and the media to control what people think, and they're all going after Donald Trump and his supporters, and they're quite clearly the people responsible for the disintegration of our society. If Donald Trump is opposed to that, and Donald Trump was able to have a predominantly successful presidency while there was an active coup attempt going on just beneath the surface, led by all the most powerful people and institutions in the world. How dumb and incompetent and self-centered and arrogant and all these other things could Donald Trump actually be? And the answer is not very. But they haven't figured it out because they all imagine themselves as smarter. They have better judgment. And surely they could have done a much better job than Donald Trump in every single way. None of them understand Donald Trump. Sam Harris, as I've talked about extensively on this podcast, personally believes that his work is taking down Donald Trump, that he is having this incredible effect. He is the vanguard of of the resistance to Donald Trump. He's the only person who's actually grappling with the moral consequences of Donald Trump's presidency. And that's how he knew that no matter what, it was important for the media to suppress the Hunter Biden laptop story. It was important that there was a coordinated political effort to do that because anything, anything in the world would be better than having a second Donald Trump term. He went so far as to say he doesn't care if the Hunter Biden laptop contained evidence of the dead bodies of children in Hunter's basement. It still it still was the right decision to suppress the laptop story because if they didn't, Donald Trump might have won. And they all say this stuff while pretending to know that there's nothing really that bad on that laptop. And of course, they're wrong about that. Joe Rogan still says he thinks Michelle Obama should be the next president. Why 
is that? He thinks that that's going to unite the country. Now, I think Rogan is a very intelligent guy in many ways, but how do you get there? And what in the world has Michelle Obama done to suggest that she would be a capable president? Jordan Peterson just figured out last week, and I think this is why I actually started thinking about this. He just figured out last week that the experimental gene therapy was a bad idea after being all for it. He said he trusted the process that produced the vaccine. But why is that a suitable explanation? Just like Ben Shapiro, when he admitted he and his wife never actually checked to see if the vaccine was safe or effective, Jordan Peterson simply trusted the pharmaceutical industry. Why would anyone trust the pharmaceutical industry? Years ago, leftists, Bernie bros, hated the pharmaceutical industry. They knew what the pharmaceutical industry did. But that all changes in the face of a global pandemic. Jordan Peterson could have known. We all knew. So that's absolutely no excuse. You can't just maintain your reputation after making a mistake like that. I'm glad he's coming out and admitting it. Sticking to that position would be extremely stupid. Not that it stops people like Sam Harris. But even within Jordan Peterson's posts about being misled on the vaccine, He's still covering his own mistake by saying it was someone else's mistake, the Ben Shapiro policy. And listen, I think Jordan Peterson is a brilliant guy and does a lot of good things in his work, but he should probably stop talking about politics and he should probably stop telling everyone else how things should be when he's made a pretty profound series of terrible judgments about the most important issues our country faces. Ben Shapiro thinks that he is a superior intellectual and moral being, even though he actively encouraged people to get the vaccine without checking. And he, of course, is still convinced that Trump is quite awful. Maybe Brett Weinstein will figure out the Donald Trump stuff. And maybe he has. Again, I haven't stayed totally up to date on his positions. Maybe he's gotten there. In any case, I think he's the most likely member of the intellectual dark web to come out on the other side. But his brother, Eric, is clueless. He still thinks there's a chance Ukraine is going to defeat Russia. He hasn't figured out Trump. None of these guys are out there talking about election fraud. Dave Rubin basically put himself in the intellectual dark web because they all just continued coming on to his show. So he made himself part of the club. But Dave Rubin is not an intellectual and no one has to be an intellectual. It's totally okay. He just isn't one. So pretending that he's part of this renegade intellectual culture is a little ridiculous. And then there were people like Brett Weinstein's wife, Heather Hying, Michael Shermer, Christina Hoff Summers, who were included in that intellectual dark web thing, but they were kind of ancillary characters. So the intellectual dark web really came to prominence in a New York Times article penned by none other than Barry Weiss, who is the founder of a new media organization called the Free Press and people in her circle and with the free press are the people disseminating the Twitter files drops. 
And we'll get to more of that in a second. But the point here is Barry Weiss popularized this movement and kind of mainstreamed it while she was at the New York Times. There was a big glossy photo shoot like you'd see in a Hollywood entertainment magazine. All of the characters in the intellectual dark web in different settings. Sam Harris was standing in a bush like Barack Obama's ridiculous presidential portrait. Sam Harris just standing there being smart in a bush. Michael Shermer being smart in front of a tree. Eric Weinstein being smart while holding an umbrella. It was really pretty absurd. It looked like a movie poster for the X-Men. Just a collection of superheroes whose superpower was convincing the general public that they were really, really smart. And to be honest... I was on board with many of these characters back when all this was going on. I was an avid Rogan listener. I was a Sam Harris fan, as I have admitted before. I thought Eric Weinstein's show, The Portal, had a lot of interesting conversations. But I thought that because I was only marginally awake myself. I listen to these people now and I see what they say on Twitter. And I'm like, wow, these people are absolutely clueless. But the interesting thing is, Barry Weiss put this article out in the New York Times mainstreaming the intellectual dark web. What does that mean? Well, that means that the country's paper of record, the very, very serious and austere New York Times broadcast to everyone that this is the rise of the new renegade intellectual class. The regime's mouthpiece, the New York Times, told everyone who the renegades were. These are the renegades. These are the dissidents. These are the people who are saying the things that the regime doesn't want said. And the regime is happy to advertise all of them nonetheless. Well, that doesn't make sense. So what does that tell you? That tells you that these people are selected as the perfect controlled opposition. And four or five years later, whatever it is, They remain controlled opposition. None of them have explored the issue of stolen elections. All of them, with the exception of maybe Brett Weinstein, were all for the vaccine. They took the COVID narrative hook, line and sinker. They all believe the very violent insurrection narrative. And despite the disintegration of society and watching elections being stolen In broad daylight in Arizona and elsewhere, they still cannot break through that barrier and understand who Donald Trump is and what he represents, what all of this means, who the enemy really is. And the reason for that is pretty clearly they're going to get punished. Rogan's got a $300 million contract with Spotify. I have no idea what the restrictions on his speech are, but I do know that within the last two years, he has hosted basically everyone from the regime. Is he better than the rest of the people in the media with large platforms? Sure, I guess. But he also made a video about a year ago where he said he was totally fine with Spotify applying warning labels to his content 
taking down past episodes and thinking that that was something that Spotify should be welcome to do with other shows because he understands the important problem of disinformation. So in my mind, none of these people gets a pass, and I don't understand how anyone still considers them intellectual. They do not toy around with new ideas. They think their ideas are just fine. They can't consider something like they might be wrong about all of it, as intellectuals must do. So the intellectual dark web is basically a farce pushed on us by the regime and who was responsible for that? Well, it was Barry Weiss. Now, Barry Weiss eventually got canceled by the New York Times editorial board, which makes people who generally understand that the regime and its media are lying all the time think, oh, well, maybe Barry Weiss is one of the good ones. If she gets canceled by these degenerate communists at the New York Times editorial board, she must be telling the truth. But no, she simply found a better opportunity. She is still very much in the party of false decorum. She is very much an elitist and accepted into that elite circle. And so are the quasi journalists she has surrounded herself with doing the work of disseminating the Twitter files. Now, Matt Taibbi is not part of her organization, the free press, but he is also a Trump hater. So we have only Trump haters disseminating the Twitter files. And we've talked about it before. Maybe all of this is okay. Maybe it is serving its function by waking up or softening the anger of the normies out there. Maybe it's cluing them in to the level of involvement the government had in censoring American citizens, especially around important issues like our elections or the absolute compromise of a presidential candidate, or the facts about a pandemic. But by and large, most of this stuff was information we already knew and have known for a while. It's not new information. The mainstream is pretending that it is new information, because if it's new information, then they had an excuse not to know it for the last three years which means that them ignoring all of this stuff for the last three years was actually the right decision because it wasn't true then. It's only true now. And naturally, that makes no sense, which is why only people like Scott Adams believe it. The problem is that our intellectual class, by and large, is all people like Scott Adams who could never possibly imagine that they're the ones who got tricked. They're the dumb ones in this scenario. It just doesn't make sense to them. So they figure out every other possibility to avoid that one. The information just sprang into being, even though it's information about what happened three years ago while we were saying, hey, this thing is happening. And so then we get to Elon Musk. Now, a lot of people are concerned with whether Elon Musk is a good guy or a bad guy, a white hat or a black hat. I don't do that. Partly because I think it's irrelevant and mostly because I think it's a complete and total waste of time. You don't need to decide someone is good and then trust everything they do or decide someone is bad and that nothing they can possibly do in the future could ever be good. It's just pointless. And I think that we've found that to be true over these last three years. Reality has proven 
that that is not a good way to go about judging people. Someone's not all good or all bad. What matters is what they're doing and whether each of those individual actions or statements seems to be pushing the awakening forward or hindering the awakening. We can see regime politicians with everything they say trying to reattach people to the central narrative that supports the regime's agenda. And if they're doing that all the time, it is totally reasonable to assume that they are not on our side. And that's just fine. But just as we've seen many people we thought were on our side betray Trump and betray MAGA and the America First agenda, we might also see people in that category of bad guys prove to be part of some larger plan where they were simply playing a role. Now, Elon Musk has been part of the green agenda in some way. We've seen him push the transhumanist movement forward with Neuralink and other various projects supporting the burgeoning technocracy. And people have thought that he is tied to the World Economic Forum, though he came out the other day and said he's been invited and they've publicized those invitations, but that he is not actually part of it at all. And so you can take that for what it's worth. He did say this in an interview the other day, and it's very interesting. I mean, to be totally frank, um, almost every conspiracy theory that people had about Twitter turned out to be true. <laughs> so <laughs> like if, is there a conspiracy theory about Twitter that didn't turn out to be true? Uh, so far, they've all turned out to be true. And if not uh, more true than people thought. And he's right, of course, because the conspiracy theories about Twitter were not conspiracy theories. They were just conspiracies that we had evidence of and tried to warn the public about. Hey, the censorship is making it impossible to disseminate the truth about what we are told is a very deadly pandemic. Censorship on an issue like that has a death toll. And that becomes proven in greater and darker ways every single day. And that's just one of the absolutely critical issues that was censored by Twitter in coordination with the FBI and the CIA and other agencies of the federal government in direct violation of the First Amendment. The government is not allowed to delegate to private companies things that the government is not allowed to do itself. But that's exactly what it did. And the entire time we were told it was OK because Twitter was a private company. It doesn't make a difference whether or not Twitter is a private company when they are working as an agent of the state. The Twitter files releases aren't making those conspiracy theories true. They're just mainstreaming them throughout America. We already had more than ample evidence about all of it to say, hey, this is actually proven. It's not a conspiracy theory. It's in evidence right now. You can just look at the evidence, but people refuse to look at the evidence because they don't want it to be true. And gradually, as some of the emotional pressure as the incentive and punishment structure changes, 
people become more open to accepting things that they rejected a while back because reality has already proven them wrong. What we are reaching now is the point at which they can no longer be taken seriously in public for supporting those old positions. And for people still trapped in the party of false decorum, that's all that really matters. They are making a calculation about their reputations. Now, rather than receiving social credit for denying the truth of all these things, they lose social credit for denying all those things, because now, by and large, most people accept that all of it was true. So now they just sound clueless if they continue to deny it, which is not to say they won't find other ways to explain it, which will, of course, eventually be proven wrong as well. But the incentive and punishment structure around their reputation has changed. So now they can freely accept what has been true for an awfully long time. And before I get into the Twitter files, I just want to mention two more really interesting replies from Elon Musk over the last couple of days. He replied in one instance to an Ian Miles Chong tweet talking about liberals calling for the arrest of Tucker Carlson for treason because he said the Russians aren't bombing themselves. Elon Musk responded, we should think of various explanations for any given event in terms of probabilities, not certainties. Those who don't allow any question of the narrative at all are full of shit. And that's exactly right. We have to eliminate fully the idea that there are certainties, especially when being certain about any given issue means being reliant on the mainstream press or the government or the corporations or any other institution of power that has been aligned against Donald Trump and the American people, the people of the world, actually, to tell us the truth. We have to fully abandon the idea that certainty is derived from the agreement with the authoritative source as it passes down information from the top. And that's scary for a lot of people because not knowing is very hard. A lot of people don't like living in a state of doubt and skepticism about important things. They want one answer that they can stick to. But that's no longer practical, not that it ever was. It's not available. That kind of truth and certainty is not available. We have to discern for ourselves what's true or false, and we need to keep an open mind about what we might have missed. And it turns out that it is actually better to focus on a series of plausible possibilities, a range of things that might happen, rather than assuming we'll be able to figure out exactly what will happen. And maybe we're only right 20% of the time or 50% of the time or 90% of the time. We're still going to be wrong at times, and sometimes we're going to be wrong about important things, and we just have to deal with it. But working that way, working our way through these problems is still better than accepting the voice of the authoritative source. And then when that proves to be wrong, assuming that it was okay all the time about being wrong, about us having trusted a source that is wrong over and over and over again, because we have the safety of everyone else being wrong, too. That's how people who have been indoctrinated on some level have always imagined things. And I can speak for myself a number of years ago, 
five, six, seven years ago. That's where I was. I thought the science had the answers. I thought that we could largely rely on mainstream sources, at least for the basic information that the events they described had really happened and that they were giving biased opinions about what those events mean. But we could still understand that the events were real. And we have to shed ourselves of that, too. Being wrong in the eyes of other people is not more important than being right and doing the right things to prepare ourselves and our friends and our family to communicate the truths that actually matter so that we can effectively guide our lives. Our reputation to other people cannot be more important than us getting it right for ourselves. The reputational safety that we imagine we have from agreeing with what seems like everyone else, even though it definitely isn't, and that is part of the illusion, that safety is not worth more than what we can learn and understand for ourselves as we guide ourselves through life. That's our responsibility. Elon also responded to a post by Glenn Greenwald where he was discussing Matt Taibbi. Elon Musk wrote, most people don't appreciate the significance of the point Matt was making. Every social media company is engaged in heavy censorship with significant involvement of and at times explicit direction of the government. Google frequently makes links disappear, for example. And again, this is an important statement from Elon Musk that pushes the awakening forward, regardless of whether or not Elon Musk is a good guy or a bad guy, a white hat or a gray hat or a black hat. Forget about all that. This pushes the awakening forward because this says clearly to mainstream central narrative addicted America that, yeah, what you're seeing at Twitter wasn't just at Twitter. It was all of the tech companies. And that is an important understanding for people to finally grasp. And hopefully they will. So let's get into Twitter files. Part eight. This is Lee Fang. And I'm sorry. I know I'm playing in the past here a little bit. This is a week old. You've probably heard people analyze it before, but I do want this stuff on the record on my show because I think that these Twitter files releases are signaling a significant narrative shift that's worth not skipping over. So Twitter files, part eight. How Twitter quietly aided the Pentagon's covert online PSYOP campaign. The Pentagon's covert online PSYOP campaign. So the Pentagon was running a PSYOP against the American people. Now, that sounds like a conspiracy theory, doesn't it? I mean, that's what we're told. Our government would never try to PSYOP us. And there's no way in the world that other people who are opposed to that government psyop might start a psyop to reverse the effect of the Pentagon's covert online psyop campaign. That could never happen. And I mean, if it did happen, it wouldn't be called Q. Despite promises to shut down covert state run propaganda networks, Twitter docs show that the social media giant directly assisted the U.S. military's influence operations. Twitter has claimed for years that they make concerted efforts to detect and thwart government-backed platform manipulation. 
Here is Twitter testifying to Congress about its pledge to rapidly identify and shut down all state-backed covert information operations and deceptive propaganda. And he attaches a screenshot from that testimony. Combating attempts to interfere in conversations on Twitter remains a top priority for the company, and we continue to invest heavily in our detection, disruption, and transparency efforts related to state-backed information operations. Our goal is to remove bad faith actors and to advance public understanding of these critical topics. And it's funny because from a U.S. perspective, you would read that and think, oh, they're talking about foreign state-backed information operations. Because again, normies could never imagine our government doing this to us. Twitter defines state-backed information operations as coordinated platform manipulation efforts that can be attributed with a high degree of confidence to state-affiliated actors. State-backed information operations are typically associated with misleading, deceptive, and spammy behavior. These behaviors differentiate coordinated manipulative behavior from legitimate speech on behalf of individuals and political parties. Whenever we identify inauthentic activity on Twitter that meets our definition of an information operation and which we are able to confidently attribute to actors associated with a government, we share comprehensive data about this activity. And when you read that, knowing what you know, you kind of get the sense that this is something a person like Bernie Madoff would say, where he's saying, well, I'm going to make sure absolutely no one is stealing from me. If it ever seems like anyone is stealing from me, I'm going to report it to the proper authorities. We don't allow theft in these parts, but it's really you don't allow theft from you. You're all about theft. Twitter doesn't allow psychological operations that could harm them, like Q, for instance. But they're totally okay with psychological operations they're participating in. But behind the scenes, Twitter gave approval and special protection to the U.S. military's online psychological influence ops. Despite knowledge that Pentagon propaganda accounts used covert identities, Twitter did not suspend many for around two years or more. Some remain active. In 2017, a U.S. CENTCOM official, Central Command, sent Twitter a list of 52 Arab language accounts, quote, we use to amplify certain messages. The official asked for priority service for six accounts, verification for one and whitelist abilities for the other. In the email, it says the rest are accounts we use to amplify certain messages. Ideally, they could be whitelisted as well. So these are state-backed sock puppet accounts that they use to disseminate their messages. And what they want is special treatment for these accounts from Twitter. The same day CENTCOM sent the list, Twitter officials use a tool to grant a special whitelist tag that essentially provides verification status to the accounts without the blue check, meaning they are exempt from spam and abuse flags, more visible and more likely to trend on hashtags. The CENTCOM accounts on the list tweeted frequently about U.S. military priorities in the Middle East, including promoting anti-Iran messages, promotion of the Saudi Arabia, U.S.-backed war in Yemen, and accurate U.S. drone strikes that claim to hit only terrorists. So they are essentially happily admitting 
that they are attempting to deceive the public to push their narrative through what people from the outside see as real and legitimate accounts of individuals stating their own personal beliefs. They have basically created a network of fake influencers to push their messaging, which is essentially what Hollywood is now. CENTCOM then shifted strategies and deleted discourses of ties to the Twitter accounts. The bios of the accounts changed to seemingly organic profiles. One bio read, Euphrates Pulse. Another used an apparent deep fake profile pic and claimed to be a source of Iraqi opinion. One Twitter official who spoke to me, this is Lee Fang writing this Twitter files drop, said he feels deceived by the covert shift. Still, many emails from throughout 2020 show that high-level Twitter executives were well aware of the Department of Defense's vast network of fake accounts and covert propaganda and did not suspend the accounts. And of course, the Twitter official, oh, he feels so deceived. For example, Twitter lawyer Jim Baker, this is Jim Baker, formerly of FBI and Russiagate fame, a person who was leaking privileged information to the press in order to harm political adversaries, that Jim Baker, mused in a July 2020 email about an upcoming DOD meeting that the Pentagon used poor tradecraft in setting up its network and were seeking strategies for not exposing the accounts that are, quote, linked to each other or to DOD or the U.S. government. Stacia Cardile, another Twitter attorney, replied that the Pentagon wanted a SCIF, that's a sensitive compartmentalized information facility, and may want to retroactively classify its social media activities, quote, to obfuscate their activity in this space, and that this may represent an overclassification to avoid embarrassment. So they were worried about their covert psychological operation being exposed, and they tried to wipe away and or classify the evidence of that PSYOP. In several other 2020 emails, high-level Twitter executives and lawyers discussed the covert network and even recirculated the 2017 list from CENTCOM and shared another list of 157 undisclosed Pentagon accounts, again, mostly focused on Middle East military issues. In a May 2020 email, Twitter's Lisa Roman emailed the DOD with two lists. One list was accounts, quote, previously provided to us, end quote, and another list Twitter detected. The accounts tweeted in Russian and Arabic on U.S. military issues in Syria and regarding ISIS, and many do not disclose Pentagon ties. How interesting. Influence operations all around the world, creating a totally fake narrative with accounts that seem like they are from knowledgeable individuals and instead are just our Department of Defense running a covert operation worldwide. Many of these secretive U.S. military propaganda accounts despite detection by Twitter as late as 2020, but potentially earlier, continued tweeting through this year, some not suspended until May 2022 or later, according to records I reviewed. And that's interesting. May 2022, that was just weeks after Elon Musk announced he would be buying Twitter. 
In August 2022, a Stanford Internet Observatory report exposed a U.S. military covert propaganda network on Facebook, Telegram, Twitter, and other apps using fake news portals and deep fake images and memes against U.S. foreign adversaries. The U.S. propaganda network relentlessly pushed narratives against Russia, China, and other foreign countries. They accused Iran of, quote, threatening Iraq's water security and flooding the country with crystal meth, end quote, and of harvesting the organs of Afghan refugees. So that was all U.S. propaganda, or at least blaming Iran was propaganda if those events actually happened, if Iraq's water security was threatened or if the country was flooded with crystal meth or there was organ harvesting happening, who was doing it? If it wasn't Iran, and the most likely answer is the people blaming it on Iran with propaganda sock puppet accounts. The Stanford report did not identify all of the accounts in the network, but one they did name was the exact same Twitter account CENTCOM asked for whitelist privileges in its 2017 email. I verified via Twitter's internal tools. The account used an AI created deep fake image. In subsequent reporting, Twitter was cast as an unbiased hero for removing, quote, a network of fake user accounts promoting pro Western policy positions, end quote. Media covering the story described Twitter as evenly applying its policies and proactive in suspending the DoD network. The reality is much more murky. Twitter actively assisted CENTCOM's network going back to 2017 and as late as 2020 knew these accounts were covert, designed to deceive, to manipulate the discourse, a violation of Twitter's policies and promises. They waited years to suspend. Twitter's comms team was closely in touch with reporters working to minimize Twitter's role. When the Washington Post reported on the scandal, Twitter officials congratulated each other because the story didn't mention any Twitter employees and focused largely on the Pentagon. The conduct with the U.S. military's covert network stands in stark contrast with how Twitter has boasted about rapidly identifying and taking down covert accounts tied to state-backed influence operations, including Thailand, Russia, Venezuela, and others since 2016. And at some point, you have to start wondering where our Department of Defense and intelligence agencies weren't running covert psyops in the world. Lee Fang then adds an article he wrote for The Intercept, a very regime communist outlet, by the way. And if you don't think I'm right about that, ask Glenn Greenwald, who was one of the founders of The Intercept and is no longer there. But Fang writes, here is my reported piece with more detail. I was given access to Twitter for a few days. I signed and agreed to nothing. Twitter had no input into anything I did or wrote. The searches were carried out by a Twitter attorney. So what I saw could be limited. So that is Twitter files number eight. The Pentagon, the Department of Defense, had a network of fake accounts it used to push a propaganda narrative and influence geopolitical events around the world. And they brought that program here and used it against Americans. But Lee Fang did not go into that part of the story, at least not in this drop. Matt Taibbi with the next Twitter files drop December 24th, 2022. 
Twitter and other government agencies. After weeks of Twitter files reports detailing close coordination between the FBI and Twitter in moderating social media content, the Bureau issued a statement Wednesday. It didn't refute allegations. Instead, it decried conspiracy theorists publishing misinformation whose sole aim is to discredit the agency. The FBI came out and said that the people disseminating the Twitter files drops were conspiracy theorists. These regime Trump hater journalists are now conspiracy theorists, according to the FBI, for releasing this information. Taibbi writes, they must think us unambitious if our sole aim is to discredit the FBI. After all, a whole range of government agencies discredit themselves in the Twitter files. Why stop with one? The files show the FBI acting as doorman to a vast program of social media surveillance and censorship, encompassing agencies across the federal government, from the State Department to the Pentagon to the CIA. The operation is far bigger than the reported 80 members of the Foreign Influence Task Force, the FITF, which also facilitates requests from a wide array of smaller actors, from local cops to media to state governments. So again, this is further proof of something that we have seen and known for a long time. There are portals and these portals are accessible by a wide range of institutions and individuals across our culture. It's not just for military and political stuff. Local cops can report things. Media organizations can report things. State governments can report things. And as I've talked many times on this podcast, I used to work at an organization that manages celebrity social media accounts. And it was common for social media managers to have portals as well. And they're not quite the same. They have contacts that work in talent relations at the various social media companies. So you can just email directly and say, hey, my client is dealing with this. What can we do about it? We certainly understand that people have been banned and censored from social media platforms for making comments that celebrities don't like. And Chrissy Teigen might spring immediately to mind. Twitter had so much contact with so many agencies that executives lost track. Is today the DOD and tomorrow the FBI? Is it the weekly call or the monthly meeting? It was dizzying. A chief end result was that thousands of official reports flowed to Twitter from all over through the FITF and the FBI's San Francisco field office. On June 29th, 2020, San Francisco FBI agent Elvis Chan wrote to a pair of Twitter execs asking if he could invite an OGA to an upcoming conference. OGA or other government agency can be a euphemism for CIA, according to multiple former intelligence officials and contractors. Chuckles one, they think it's mysterious, but it's just conspicuous. And of course, it is conspicuous. Calling the CIA the other government agency. Oh, it's so undercover. What coded language you've come up with. Other government agency, the place I worked for 27 years, says retired CIA officer Ray McGovern. It was an open secret at Twitter that one of its executives was ex-CIA, which is why Chan referred to that executive's quote-unquote former employer. The first Twitter executive abandoned any pretense to stealth and emailed that the employee, quote, 
used to work for the CIA. So that is Elvis's question. Senior legal executive Stacia Cardeal, whose alertness stood out among Twitter leaders, replied, I know. And I thought my silence was understood. Cardeal then passes on conference details to recently hired ex-FBI lawyer Jim Baker. I invited the FBI and the CIA will virtually attend too. Cardeal says to Baker, adding pointedly, no need for you to attend. The government was in constant contact, not just with Twitter, but with virtually every major tech firm. These included Facebook, Microsoft, Verizon, Reddit, even Pinterest, and many others. Industry players also held regular meetings without government. One of the most common forums was a regular meeting of the multi-agency Foreign Influence Task Force, attended by spates of executives, FBI personnel, and nearly always one or two attendees marked OGA. The FITF meeting agendas virtually always included, at or near the beginning, an OGA briefing, usually about foreign matters. Hold that thought. Despite its official remit being foreign influence, the FITF and the San Francisco FBI office became conduit for mountains of domestic moderation requests from state governments, even local police. Many requests arrived via teleporter, a one-way platform in which many communications were timed to vanish. And he encloses a screenshot from teleporter showing its download access. It says you have been granted download access to teleporter. The links will be valid through Thursday, November 5th, 2020 at 4.18 a.m. UTC. So the information is made available through this platform that only they have access to where the information can go only in one direction. And then after a period of time, the information deletes itself. Especially as the election approached in 2020, the FITF and FBI overwhelmed Twitter with requests, sending lists of hundreds of problem accounts. Email after email came from the San Francisco office heading into the election, often adorned with an Excel attachment. There were so many government requests, Twitter employees had to improvise a system for prioritizing and triaging them. And an email is attached from Stacia Cardeal at Twitter Legal. I want to reach out about election-related escalations. As you know, with the adoption of the Unified Escalation Tool and the deprecation of the Go slash election escalations, we have been sending all elections-related requests directly to get support for review. We are having some issues with the backlog impacting our elections efforts. The folks on this email represent the D.C. public policy, legal, and comms teams working on elections. Generally, we are the ones escalating the high-priority content, whether it is high-profile or coming directly from governmental partners. Specifically, pub policy and I escalate reports from the FBI, Department of Homeland Security, and state elections officials, or the Election Integrity Project run by Alex Stamos. Comms escalates a lot of content tied to press inquiries about election issues. Is there some way we can figure out an accommodation to prioritize the reports we escalate, particularly in light of the deprecation of go slash elections escalations? Although every tweet is valued, I believe it is likely that our reports are the most credible and most urgent, at least for the next week. 
Really appreciate any assistance or guidance you can provide. And this is from October 28th, 2020, less than a week before the stolen election. The FBI was clearly tailoring searches to Twitter's policies. FBI complaints were almost always depicted somewhere as a, quote, possible terms of service violation, end quote, even in the subject line. Twitter executives noticed the FBI appeared to be assigning personnel to look for Twitter violations. They have some folks in the Baltimore field office and at HQ that are just doing keyword searches for violations. This is probably the 10th request I have dealt with in the last five days, remarked Cardio. Even ex-FBI lawyer Jim Baker agreed. Odd that they are searching for violations of our policies, he says. The New York FBI office even sent requests for the, quote, user IDs and handles, end quote, of a long list of accounts named in a Daily Beast article. Senior executives say they are supportive and completely comfortable doing so. It seemed to strike no one as strange that a foreign influence task force was forwarding thousands of mostly domestic reports along with the DHS about the fringiest material. Now, I'm going to pause for a second on this particular message right here, because either Matt Taibbi is intentionally misframing this as fringy material in order to widely disseminate this material in the first place, kind of like the spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down theory, or he is absolutely clueless about an important issue. But the attached screenshot that he posts here is a headline that reads Biden using scorecard and the hammer to steal another U.S. presidential election, just like Obama and Biden did in 2012. So the foreign influence task force was worried about this headline being disseminated in the United States and why. Oh, because it's a conspiracy theory and hammer and scorecard don't exist. And Dennis Montgomery, well, he just can't be trusted. That guy's a fraud. But still, they want to censor it because it's false. Well, that seems odd, doesn't it? This false story, this very fringy story that no one serious would ever believe still needs to be censored off of Twitter. Now, the funny thing is with this timing, Last week, Reuters published a really, really overlong article that was through and through in its intent and execution, a hit piece on Dennis Montgomery. They want to muddy the waters about Dennis Montgomery. They want to poison the well on Dennis Montgomery. They don't want anyone to believe that Dennis Montgomery might ever be telling the truth. Now, why would they publish that article last week? It's not like Hammer and Scorecard have been in the news. It's not like Dennis Montgomery has been in the news. I mean, I've talked about him last week with Robert Beatles and Robert Beatles was on Frank's speech talking about Dennis Montgomery and Hammer and Scorecard, but it's not like it's a national news story. So what is with the timing of this takedown of Dennis Montgomery? Very odd for Reuters, one of the mouthpieces of global communism, to distribute a story like that and go into such depth about all of the reasons you should never, ever trust Dennis Montgomery. And then a couple of days later in the Twitter files, here we go. Hammer and scorecard, the fringiest material on the Internet. But let's move on. 
Foreign meddling had been the ostensible justification for expanded moderation since platforms like Twitter were dragged to the hill by the Senate in 2017. Yet behind the scenes, Twitter executives struggled against government claims of foreign interference supposedly occurring on their platform and others. The Twitter files show execs under constant pressure to validate theories of foreign influence and unable to find evidence for key assertions. Found no links to Russia, says one analyst, but suggests he could brainstorm to find a stronger connection because they want to do the bidding of their masters well. And their masters demand more stories about foreign influence. Extremely tenuous circumstantial chance of being related, says another. They're trying to create connections where they just don't exist. You know who does that? (laughs) Uh, Conspiracy theorists. No real matches using the info, says former trust and safety chief Yoel Roth in another case, noting some links were quote unquote clearly Russian, but another was just a quote unquote house rental in South Carolina. In another case, Roth concludes a series of Venezuelan pro Maduro accounts are unrelated to Russia's Internet Research Agency because they're too high volume. The Venezuelans were, quote, extremely high volume tweeters, pretty uncharacteristic of a lot of the other IRA activity, Roth says. And you have to remember that Yoel Roth has a finely tuned detection apparatus built into his brain that allows him to see Russian disinformation efforts right away. That's how he nailed it on the Hunter Biden laptop. In a key email, news that the State Department was making a wobbly public assertion of Russian influence led an exec, the same one with the OGA past, to make a damning admission. Quote, due to a lack of technical evidence on our end, I've generally left it be waiting for more evidence, he says. Our window on that is closing, given that government partners are becoming more aggressive on attribution. Translation, more aggressive government partners had closed Twitter's window of independence. Other government agencies, that's the CIA again, ended up sharing intelligence through the FBI and FITF, not just with Twitter, but with Yahoo, Twitch, Cloudfare, LinkedIn, even Wikimedia. So basically, they're covering all their bases, just wherever unfortunate information might be disseminated, they have to have their censorship regime in control of all of it. Former CIA agent and whistleblower John Kiriakou believes he recognizes the formatting of these reports. Looks right on to me, Kiriakou says, noting that, quote, what was cut off above the tear line was the originating CIA office and all the copied offices. Many people wonder if Internet platforms receive direction from intelligence agencies about moderation of foreign policy news stories. It appears Twitter did, in some cases by way of the Foreign Influence Task Force and the FBI. These reports are far more factually controversial than domestic counterparts. One Intel report lists accounts tied to, quote, Ukraine neo-Nazi propaganda. This includes assertions that Joe Biden helped orchestrate a coup in 2014 and put his son on the board of Burisma. And of course, all of that is actually true information. There are Ukrainian neo-Nazis. Joe Biden did help orchestrate the coup in 2014, and he did put his son on the board of Burisma. 
Another report asserts a list of accounts accusing the Biden administration of corruption in vaccine distribution are part of a Russian influence campaign. Often, intelligence came in the form of brief reports, followed by long lists of accounts simply deemed to be pro-Maduro, pro-Cuba, pro-Russia, etc. This one batch had over a thousand accounts marked for digital execution. One report says a site, quote, documenting purported rights abuses committed by Ukrainians, end quote, is directed by Russian agents. And of course, that's what they're going to say. Otherwise, they would have to admit that the atrocities happening throughout Ukraine are, in fact, happening at the hands of Ukrainian neo-Nazis. Intel about the shady origin of these accounts might be true, but so might at least some of the information in them about neo-Nazis, rights abuses in Donbass, even about our own government. Should we block such material? This is a difficult speech dilemma. Should the government be allowed to try to prevent Americans and others from seeing pro-Maduro or anti-Ukrainian accounts? And again, this is why it's crucial to understand who these journalists are. I'm sure that Matt Taibbi is a good, intelligent dude who operates largely in good faith and may just have massive blind spots about Trump and things like COVID and, you know, how the world works. But this is not a difficult speech dilemma. This is a very, very easy issue. There should be no censorship. It's that simple. It doesn't matter whether or not we can be convinced that the censorship benefits us in some way. That is not the issue. There should be no censorship. And it's similar to the mandates we saw during COVID, the mask mandates, the vaccine mandates. While it matters that masks don't actually work, the critical issue is that we cannot be mandated to do stuff like that. The government is not just simply allowed to set rules for us governing our behavior in all circumstances. That's not what the government is there for. We tell the government what we want, not the other way around. You can't mandate behavior and you can't deprive people of their rights to free speech. The government just cannot do that. Often, Intel reports are just long lists of newspapers, tweets, or YouTube videos guilty of, quote unquote, anti-Ukraine narratives. So you're not allowed to talk bad about Ukraine on Twitter up until recently, which is the flip side of what Twitter files number eight talks about. So on their side, they can have all of these fake accounts promoting these propaganda narratives so that the Pentagon and the military industrial complex has the narrative out in the world that benefits them and their agenda. And at the same time, they have the right and the ability to censor anyone who's disputing that agenda. So propaganda on one side and censorship on the other side. Sometimes, not always, Twitter and YouTube block the accounts. But now we know for sure what Roth meant by, quote, the Bureau and by extension, the intelligence community. The line between misinformation and distorting propaganda is thin. Are we comfortable with so many companies receiving so many reports from a more aggressive government? The CIA has yet to comment on the nature of its relationship to tech companies like Twitter. Twitter had no input into anything I did or wrote. The searches were carried out by third parties, so what I saw could be limited. Now, that, again, is pretty interesting. We've been wondering, 
Who's doing these redactions? Who has compiled all of this information for these journalists? Because these stories do seem tailored. They do seem specifically targeted to address certain issues that the public by and large already had a familiarity with. And we can also, in some sense, see the Twitter files drops as part of a narrative in themselves. They are building on one another as we go along. And everything about this operation indicates that there is a plan and a structure to it. These aren't just journalists sitting by themselves with all the information publishing what they find. And so the question becomes, is this a limited hangout or is it gradual exposure in a way that the public will be able to actually accept and understand? And hopefully the answers to those questions will become clearer over time. So there'll be a lot more to catch up on throughout this week. And obviously so much is going on. That's new. I'm going to try to work it all in as best I can. In the meantime, I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.CancelCouture.com. And you can find everything else by heading to Linktree, linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range.
It's hell!